What's going on, everybody? How y'all doing out there? Man, it feels so good to be back with you guys once again. This is TJ with another episode of The Soapbox, and I want to thank you guys so much for your love and support. I got a wonderful episode for you guys today, full of brand new information, some stuff for you to chew on as you move into the next week, the next month, the next year, and we continue to build on top of each other. So, we're not going to waste any time, so with no further ado, let's jump into the episode. All right, so like I said at the very beginning of the episode, I'm really excited to talk to you guys today because I've got some brand new information to present to you. And then at the back end of the episode, we're going to talk about a subject matter that's probably going to run into next week's episode as well. So first and foremost, I want to tell you guys about an outstanding opportunity that I am actually working with some people to create right now. So I know lately there's been a lot of talk about economic inequality, social issues, civil unrest, everything that's going on around in the world. And it's good that we've started a dialogue. We've started a conversation. But once the conversation stops, once the protests stop, once people stop demanding change as actively as they are right now, there has to be some type of grassroots groundwork that needs to be done. Historically, what has happened is that the African-American community will raise a lot of noise, will make a scene, will show up. But when it comes down to actually solving some of these problems that we have, there is not much action that's actually done. And I can see this happening just about every time something rises that sparks the attention of the public. So instead of just being about a whole lot of talk, me and a group of other like-minded individuals have decided to develop an opportunity to present to the population that can actually assist in some of the issues that we have when it comes down to many of our disparities. In order to really understand this, I've got some numbers that I want to talk to you guys about. So when I began researching information for this project, I wanted to truly understand the depths of the wealth gap between the minority class in America and the majority class in America. And the numbers that I found were staggering. Now, one of my main sources for information was the Urban Institute. I also used Forbes. And of course, I tapped into the Federal Reserve and other locations that gave me numbers that I could compare. Sometimes these numbers didn't quite match up exactly, but nevertheless, in every single source, it was obvious that the wealth gap between the majority of America's population and the minority of America's population was staggeringly large. But before I actually get to explaining the numbers that you need to think about, I need to explain some terms. So the first term that we utilized in all of our presentations was median wealth. 
Now, for you to understand what median wealth is, you have to think about the middle ground of any any type of financial situation. So if I'm gauging the median wealth of, say, my neighborhood, then what I would do is I would take the high end of income inside of my neighborhood and the low end of income. And then the median wealth number would actually be the number in the middle. Now, once you determine that, then you can actually place people in categories as far as whether they're living above the median wealth level or below. When it comes down to the numbers that began to catch my eye greatly, we began to compare the median wealth levels of two different groups of people. So when we looked at the median wealth level for the minority in 1963, the median wealth level for minorities was a little over $2,000. That's $2,000 at the median level for the average household. So now there were people that lived below that in the minority community, and there were people that lived above that. But the average was somewhere around $2,000. For the majority population, that number was above $47,000 in 1963. So now you fast forward from 1963 to 2016, and the actual percentage that was grown gap-wise was only 5%. The numbers that changed were staggering. As a matter of fact, the majority population grew well over $170,000 at median level, while the minority populations did not eclipse $20,000. That's very important information because you have to understand that if the average minority family only has roughly 17 to $24,000 worth of actual median wealth, then they're going to be really hard pressed to compete in a world where you have a majority population who has at least three to four times that size of wealth at their disposal. But my studies didn't stop there. So I continued on and I looked at the Forbes numbers. Now, the Forbes numbers were a little bit different. What they demonstrated, however, that I really dug into was a forecast for the future. The Forbes numbers demonstrated a much less favorable look at all of the populations, um, making the minority numbers look very, very small compared to the majority numbers. But the forecast for 2024 would actually create a situation where the minority class would only be operating at a median wealth level of 1% of the median wealth of the majority population. That puts us at a major disadvantage when it comes down to everything. But we'll continue to talk about this really quickly so I can get you to that point. So as I continued my studies, I began to realize that there were numbers that had to break this problem down even further. First off, we had to understand that the majority population makes up 60% or a little more than the entire population of the country, but they hold 85.5% of the country's wealth. That only left a small percentage for 
all of the minorities that are left to actually take part in. The African-American community makes up roughly 12% of the population, but they only control about 4.5% of the country's wealth. This led me to net wealth. Now, net wealth is where we break this thing down even more, and we start to actually take a, a photographic glimpse at the individual wealth that we're dealing with here. And when you think about net wealth, what you have to think about is you have to think about a person's total capital, everything that they own and they can actually utilize as equity weighed against everything that they owe. So all of their liabilities. Once this was done, the numbers began to show something very disturbing when it started years ago and has continued even now. According to the Federal Reserve, the average Hispanic net wealth is about $53,000. African Americans average somewhere around 107000 However, America's majority class averages somewhere around $437,000 in net wealth. That in itself puts each individual in an entirely different class of being able to operate. And we have to remember that this is an average number. So that doesn't mean that everybody's operating at this number. So there are serious, serious disparities when it comes down to the wealth gap that we have to pay attention to and do something about instead of just talking. So I know that there are questions that people may be wondering. For instance, someone may say, well, why is wealth so important? Well, when a person can't afford to eat, then they're not thinking about health care. They're not thinking about going to the movies. They're not thinking about going to the store to buy clothes. They're only thinking about feeding themselves and feeding their families. But those elements trickle throughout their whole life. People that work from paycheck to paycheck have to figure out a way to live in a condition where they can utilize the funds that they have to feed their families while at the same time not going under. There's no way that they can save because every single penny goes towards paying bills. That puts people in a very dangerous situation because the slightest thing that could happen in life, the slightest hiccup, and they begin to tumble under. Those are things that people have to take into consideration because historically and systemically, minorities have been caused to live in conditions and work in conditions that did not open doors for them to achieve wealth. But wealth does so much more than that. Wealth opens the door for schooling, better education, Wealth opens the door for better opportunities to save and invest. Wealth opens the door for people to be able to build and construct their lives as opposed to just having to live whatever way that the particular situation presents to them. Wealth gives people the ability to have affordable health care. Wealth gives people the ability to own cars and vehicles that work, that are serviced so that they can get to and from jobs. Wealth matters greatly. So to say 
that it is not important to focus on the wealth gap is absolutely ridiculous. And that is why we developed the MHOC. Now, what the MHOC is, this is the Minority Home Ownership Coalition. So the next question that may be asked is, is why is home ownership such a big factor? Well, statistics have shown that the leading source of generational wealth is home and land ownership. I want you to think about something for a second. Really, really think about this. Right now, today, you could apply for a loan from the federal government to go to school. Nine times out of 10, they're going to give you that loan. They're going to front you that money so that you can go to school and you can get a degree. As a matter of fact, they're going to do that all the way through your master's degree. I know I do, and I'm pretty sure there are many of you out there right now that owe the federal government thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for education. Have you ever thought about the fact that the federal government won't loan you the same amount of money to buy a home, to buy land? Have you ever thought about the hurdles that you have to jump, the requirements that you have to meet just to get the same exact amount of money, the same exact type of loan, just so you could buy something like a car? That's because what the federal government knows and what the system that has been developed around you understands is that there is equity in owning a home. There is equity in owning land. There's no equity in owning a degree. It's just a piece of paper. And the truth of the matter is, whatever job that you're applying for, that degree doesn't necessarily have to get you anywhere. Most times, the degree itself is just an entry-level requirement, a way to weed out people that the job itself doesn't necessarily feel like would be worthy of the position. Owning a home allows you to do so much for yourself. It gives you a well of financial security that you can tap into in so many different ways. My best friend in the whole wide world is throat deep in real estate. And when I tell you that we have had numerous conversations about his ability to be able to leave a lasting legacy of financial stability for his children when he passes on is remarkable. The problem is, is that there aren't many minority families that can actually do that. Most times what we leave our children is debt. So we have to right this ship, which is why we came up with the Minority Home Ownership Coalition. So let me explain to you what this coalition is. We are a group of people right now, and we are raising money in order to help this process speed up faster. But we are a group of people that are willing to help minorities enter into home ownership. Inside of the Minority Home Ownership Coalition, we have various various programs that people can become a part of. And what we will do is we will help you pay your down payment to get into your home. We'll help you purchase refurbished foreclosures and many other assets that we have inside of the program. Now, right now we're at the beginning phases because we're starting Kickstarters and crowdfunders and things to help us get the initial capital we need to kick this thing off right. 
But understand, whether that happens or not, we're going to push forward because I'm tired of being a part of the group of African-Americans that simply talks about helping our people. I actually want to be a part of the group of African-Americans that actually helps our people. And that's what we need to do. Now, there may be a question out there that lingers. Why are you focusing only on minorities? Because the truth of the matter is, one, the minority class in America is the one that is deprived. And as a Christian, it is my calling and my obligation to help those who cannot help themselves. It is my obligation to look out for the deprived, for those that are poor and needy and need the assistance and help that's out there. Two, there is so much help out there for the majority population, so much so that it has perpetrated this situation of where this wealth gap, both median and net, has evolved into what it has now. Back in the 1920s, home ownership was the target. The majority population was allowed to purchase homes at reduced prices so that they could actually capitalize on low-grade, low-cost home ownership, while the minority population wasn't even allowed to purchase homes. We had periods throughout time where actual realtors would lose their license if they sold homes to African-Americans. Those things helped create the situation that we have in the wealth gap right now. We have to fix it. We can't wait for the federal government to fix it. We can't wait for state legislators to figure it out. We can't even wait for city and town legislatures to actually get on board. We have to do this ourselves. If we really care about the state of our minority communities, then what we need to start doing is take ownership of them and begin to build them up. I know there are many people out there who listen to my podcast and you don't follow the statistics. You don't see the numbers. You don't understand the blend between what is suburban and what is urban and all those different things. And I get that. But I tell you now, I guarantee you there are many of you that can look outside of your door right now and you see the issues that we face in this country. So the MHOC is here. We're pushing forward and we want support. We need your help as well as many others. We have a GoFundMe page and I'm going to have the link on this podcast. We also have a crowdfunder that's coming up and quite a few other crowdfunding sites that we are actually going to tie into. But you don't even have to connect to those sites to help out. You can become a part of the MHOC too easily. And all you have to do is check out the video that we have on the site. Check out the entire breakdown of the company. There are no illusions. Every single aspect of the company is written out and written down in our outline. So now that leads me to what is probably going to be part A of the subject matter that I want to discuss between the rest of this podcast and next week. So what I've been really digging into lately a, a lot is the numbers and the understanding of the racial divide in our country and many, many other aspects that come along with that. And you know, what I've come to realize is that we don't suffer from overt racism 
anymore. Now, let me be clear. The last four years under Donald Trump, for whatever anyone may believe, you cannot deny that many racist, many prejudiced groups became emboldened in their statements. Many people who would not have said a single word out in the open about their racial stances and their oppressive stances came out and they were bold in their statement. So I get it that we still have a pocket of America that does not feel like they should be sharing this space with the minority population. I get that. I get that. It's very sad that we are here in 2020 and we still have to deal with that type of ideology. But you know what? That's neither here nor there. What I don't believe, though, I don't believe that we have a vast majority of America's population that shares those views. I don't believe that those types of numbers are there anymore. Yes, they were there at one point in time, but I do not believe that they're there now. Now, do I still believe that we have systemic racism in America? Yes, very much so. But that is something that has to be worked out. It didn't happen overnight. It's not going to be fixed overnight. But it's going to take common sense approaches to laws, policies, and districting in these different areas. But what I do believe that we have overwhelmingly is racial bias, not racial prejudice but racial bias. We're going to need to understand those two terms before we can actually go forward in understanding this whole ideology. So the first term that we have to make sure that we understand is prejudice. The dictionary says that prejudice is preconceived judgment or opinion, an adverse opinion or leaning formed without just grounds or before sufficient knowledge. And finally, an irrational attitude of hostility directed against an individual, a group, a race, or their supposed characteristics. That is prejudice. Bias turns out to be a particular tendency, trend, inclination, feeling, or opinion, especially one that is preconceived or unreasoned. Now, you might say that both of those words are relatively close, and they are. But without a shadow of a doubt, you have to understand, and I'm sure you can see, that prejudice is much more aggressive than bias. And bias tends to be something that we will actually overlook and allow in our population. The great Martin Luther King Jr. said that 11 o'clock a.m. on Sunday morning is by far the most segregated time in America. Do you know why he said that? He said that because at 11 o'clock in America, at that particular time, most able-bodied individuals went to church. But when they went to church, they went to church with like individual. Back then, you didn't have these integrated congregations. So white people went and worshiped with white people, and black people went and worshiped with black people. Fast forward from the time of Martin Luther King to the time of 2020, where we are now. And although we have pockets of interracial worship, 
for the majority of the country, white people still worship with white people. Black people still worship with black people. Ladies and gentlemen, this has always been a conundrum for me. It absolutely drives me batty thinking about this concept because as a church goer and as a Christian, I have always sat in congregations and listened to pastors talk about the unification of the church, accepting people, understanding people's differences, and working together as brothers and sisters. Yet, when I look around, I very rarely see individuals who are not like. I know that many of my listeners may or may not be Christians. So I have to illustrate a character that I'm going to reference right now. And that is the character of Paul. Now, for those Christians that listen to my podcast, they understand, but I'll dig a little deeper for you so that you will know what I'm trying to get at. Paul was a very influential Christian. He was so influential that he's responsible for actually pinning a large portion of what we call the New Testament. And while Paul was a very influential Christian, Paul was not a very favored Christian. People didn't necessarily like Paul because Paul challenged the norm. Paul began teaching the Gospels to what people considered at the time Gentiles. Gentiles were people that were not Jewish or not of Jewish descent. So you had a lot of different operations going on that were basically targeting the Jewish community. However, Paul said that the commandment that was given to him was to preach to the Gentile. So that's what he did. And there was a lot of backlash. There was a lot of people saying different things at that time. And if you go back and listen to history, then you'll get different people's sides of the story. And actually, if you comb your Bible well, you'll even find some arguments against Paul's actions right there inside of the Bible. But see, here's the problem. Paul made it very clear that the gospel was supposed to be sacred, honored loved and pure, and presented to all of the world. But at no point in time did he ever preach segregation. At no time did he preach division. And there was never a point when he really pushed out this idea of simply worshiping with people that you're comfortable with. As a matter of fact, if you really pay close attention to most of the patrons of that time frame, they did a lot of stuff that wasn't comfortable. Most of them did it right up until their death, which I'm sure wasn't comfortable at all either. But we tend to want to be comfortable and comfort leads to bias. And whether we realize it or not, that leads to segregation. And see, even if you go back further before Paul and we look at the walk inside of the Bible of Jesus, we forget that Jesus was the one who said, go and preach to all nations. Never once did he say, only talk to the people that are comfortable. Never once did he say, only talk to the people that look like you. But see, the problem is, is that what Dr. King was saying was that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is our most sacred moment. 
of the day, of the week. And we're segregated at our most holiest point. So if we're segregated at our most holiest point, if we have racial bias at the one moment in the week when we're supposed to be together the most, how in the world do we expect to not be that way during the times when we're not at our best, when we're not in our holiest, when we're not trying our best to love our neighbors? And that bias shows in so much of the country. I pulled more stats when it came down to racial bias from the Pew Research Center. And some of the things that I found were absolutely startling. One of the biggest numbers that just simply jumped out to me is that the majority of the nation believe that if you are an African-American, that you have had a harder time than most other races. On the flip side of that, most of America believes that if you are a white person in America, that you actually have more opportunities and an easier time. Now, here's what just, it just drives me batty. If these are numbers that the majority of the people that these polls are done off feel, why do you think it is that nothing's changed? Clearly, the wealth gap hasn't changed a bit. The Urban Institute shows you there's only been a 5% growth in dealing with the wealth gap since 1963. And if you think about it, since we're in election season, all these presidents promise us a better tomorrow. Every single one of them does it. All these senators promise it. These House representatives promise. These governors promise. And where do we sit right now? Where do we sit? We sit in the same situation that we were in in the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 30s. Yeah, the numbers may have changed a little bit. Yeah, we may have a little more comfortable life. But I don't know how you feel about it. But if I'm sitting in a burning house, it doesn't matter to me whether I'm on the third floor or the basement. The house is still burning. We have to take initiative and action to fix racial bias. But we also have to understand that there are portions of this that we just can't do by ourselves. We need help. So next week, I'm going to continue on this racial bias versus racial prejudice subject matter. I want to talk about some solutions that we need to try to wrap our heads around as a people, as a nation. And I'm also going to continue to show the difference in the two. Because I think people need to understand that you may not necessarily be a supremacist and you may not necessarily be prejudiced, but you could very well be biased. And that is a danger as well. All right. Well, that's all I got for you guys this week. I want to thank you so, so much for coming out. Listen, the MHOC is active and we are on the scene. Go to our GoFundMe site. Go to our crowdfunder site. Check out our Facebook stuff. I'm telling you guys, we're going to try to help every single minority that we possibly can. So make sure you reach out to us. We'll tell you how to apply and we'll go from there. All right, everybody take care. I love you, my soapboxes. Peace.